Welcome to episode number 26 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this episode of The Thermal, tow plane bird strike and a remarkable story of survival. We hear from a young pilot who narrowly escaped with his life. The international vintage sailplane meet at Harris Hill, New York has wrapped up. We talked to one of the pilots who went and what it's like to fly a very special vintage ship. And Baptiste Innocent has done it again. This time he set new national and European records by flying to the island of Corsica from mainland France and then home via Italy. Baptiste gives us a first-hand account. That and a whole lot more in episode number 26 of The Thermal. Earlier this month, we had a cross-country training camp at my gliding club, the Southern Ontario Soaring Association, or SOSA. The weather was great, and we were getting a lot of training in. One of our young summer tow pilots, Owen Holscher, you know, the guys who are desperately trying to build hours for the first commercial job, he had a morning simulator training session, so I towed for him until he could arrive. Once he got there, I turned over the Piper Pawnee tow plane, and we got in our two-seaters for the off-field landing exercises at a nearby grass strip. One trainer had already landed there when I flew in with a student in a K-21. After we landed, we heard that Owen had suffered a serious bird strike after towing us. I reached Owen at his home in Woodstock, Ontario for the full story. Owen set the scene. How much experience do you have and how was towing going that day? Uh, currently, I have about 230 hours. Um, I've been towing for the last about two months. And that day, is, uh, it was a pretty good day. Uh, just did two two toes uh, before the incident happened. Okay. Now, y- you towed me and a student to about 3,000 feet AGLs who we could do this off-field landing uh, practice stuff. Now, after we released and we flew onto the, the airfield, you went back to our club. Take me through, step-by-step, step, what happened. Uh, we released, and then uh, I did the, you know, the stair left turn away, started descending kind of en route on the way back to the club. Uh, then I did a 180 and joined uh, downwind, um, kind of descending through the circuit as you usually would. Right. Everything was normal, then, uh, not a lot of traffic that day. Yeah, no traffic. But all, all the gliders were uh, en route to the uh, other aerodrome, so there was no one in the area. And, uh, yeah, so I turned base, and I, I looked down to do an instrument scan, I think it was about 500 feet AGL, maybe about 100 miles an hour uh, airspeed, and uh, just bang, this huge, huge noise, Um, and everything kind of went black for a second or two there. And did you know what had happened? I I didn't see anything. I didn't. I didn't know what happened. You know, I was just uh, just flying flying the plane. And all of a sudden, uh, I'm <laughs> I'm bleeding from above my eyes, and uh, it's just super loud. And I was super confused. It's like uh, it was kind of like when, you, when you're in a deep, deep sleep, and someone comes in and startles you awake, and you just have to figure out, you know, what the emergency is. Wow. Um, so what what happened? You you this big bang happens. What happened then? What did you do? So, yeah, actually, I heard the bang, and then, you know, I, I opened my eyes again, and it's all, everything was kind of hazy and stuff, and, you know, I go, the first thing that kind of went through my head is, you know, oh, okay, well, I'm alive, <laughs> and then I realized I was on base, and I was kind of in position to turn final, and all that I was telling myself was, land the plane, land the plane, land the plane. And I, because I saw the bird off uh, to my left side, it was wrapped around the uh, the post uh, that supports the windshield, and about half the left half of the windshield is completely gone and shattered. Um. Yeah, and so I so I I turned final, and then I go, oh well, maybe I should uh, I should make my mayday call. Uh, I go to hit the button, and I realized, well, wait a minute, I was I was wearing a headset, you know, a minute ago. Where'd that go? Oh, I. I was wearing my sunglasses, my hat too, and everything that was on my head was no longer on my head. <laughs> wow! So, and you and were I, lucky I you weren't blinded. It. Yeah, yeah. No, if, if, you know that bird hit in the right way, that you know my glasses would have hit me directly in the eye or something. Like, 
easily could have blinded me. And how, how big is this bird? It's a turkey vulture, right? Yeah, it was a turkey vulture. Uh, I'm going to guess somewhere in the neighborhood of 5 to 10 pounds. About a four-foot wingspan, maybe. Right, so these are big birds. Yeah, that's about as big as they come, other than maybe a uh, goose. Hmm. Now, did it hit the prop as well? No, not not from what I can tell. There was no vibrating or anything. The engine power was still uh, exactly what you would expect in that sort of scenario. So there's there's no dip in RPM. Nothing but, nothing was off with the engine. So and the bird wasn't sliced was. and diced. No, yeah, the bird was in one piece. <laughs> so you you've got the state of mind back. You said it's like waking up from a deep sleep. You're on base. You turn final. It's amazing that you got your act together and did a, a landing. I mean, can, can you still remember what that was like? You're going, Jesus, a bird and stuff, and then you turn final. Talk me through that last bit of the flight. Yeah, so I'd say I, you probably had about two to four seconds to kind of get your, your wits about you and you know figure out what the situation was. Um, and then once I kind of established, okay, you know, I'm alive, the plane's still flyable, I still have engine power, you know, the plane's still in relatively good condition, all things considered. So then, um, by the time I kind of figured all that out, I was in the position to turn on final. So I turned on final and just kind of executed a normal landing. And <laughs> I, as soon as I got on the ground, I just pulled off and shut the plane down and that's where I think uh, everyone else kind of figured out that something was wrong because I don't think anyone could really tell, given my approach path and everything, it all would have looked normal from the ground. Mm -hmm. So the plane stops, you've shut down the engine. What's going through your mind? <laughs> um, at that point, I think I was I was so high on adrenaline. You know, I just wanted someone over there to 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 help me, you know, and figure out kind of what what happened, and you know, get make sure I'm okay, make sure the plane's okay, and get a second opinion on everything. Mm -hmm. So you got out of the plane by yourself, or were you in shock? I got out of the plane myself, and I got I got out, and I just started waving my arms around, and then uh, you know, someone drove up in a golf cart, and from from there. They went back and, you know, told told everyone what happened. I, I knew it was a bird strike. I wasn't in too much shock. Um, and, uh, but I didn't really realize, you know, what what my condition was like because I, I was so, so high on adrenaline there. Mm -hmm. So the other club members saw you and the decision was made to take you to emergency, right? Uh, correct, yes. So, what kind of injuries did you sustain? Um, primarily just uh, some cuts to my face from uh, from my glasses. Um, we ended up finding my glasses afterwards, and uh, it blew the lenses right out of them, and the frames were, you know, bent right beyond repair. So, and and the cuts did you have to get stitches? How how bad were the lacerations? Uh, they glued them, but uh, I think by the time the doctor saw me, uh, it was they were already kind of sealed, and uh, so they weren't too bad. No, nothing, nothing deep, just some bruising and some cuts. Wow. So uh, it's been a few days since this happened. How are you feeling now? Um, not bad. Um, I'm surprised. I'm not more scared to get back in a plane. I you would think after something like that, you would kind of go and into to a bit of shock and uh, question some of uh, your choices, right? Mm -hmm. I haven't felt like that, surprisingly. Well, Owen, this is a remarkable story, and i got to say, I mean, I, f I flew that same tow plane that morning. I've been doing it there for 30 years. I've never come close to a bird strike like this. I don't know if I would be able to handle it in the same way you did. You did a rem remarkable job, and... Uh, I, can, I sincerely hope this is going to be the only bird strike in your entire aviation career. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, looking forward to seeing you back at the gliding club, and uh, what a story. Thank you. All right, take care, Owen.
You too. Co-pilot Owen Holscher spoke to me from Woodstock, Ontario. Go to the Thermal's Facebook page if you want to see photos of the damage to both the Pawnee and the Turkey Vulture. And now a word about our sponsor, SkySight. This weather app was designed with glider pilots in mind. If you want to learn more, listen to SkySight's founder, Matthew Scudder, on episode number 7. SkySight is easy to use and has great functionality. And it's great for predicting convergence lines and task planning. For listeners of The Thermal who are interested in trying out SkySight to maximize their cross-country flying or just figure out if it's worth the drive to the gliding club, use the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters and you'll get a 14-day free trial. French pilot Baptiste Innocent has smashed more open-class gliding records, including a 1,300-kilometer free triangle, territorial record, French record, and European record. To really appreciate this interview, you should first go to the OLC and look at Baptiste's epic flight from the 5th of August of this year. Baptiste launched from Fayence, his club north of Nice, flew across the Mediterranean to the northern tip of Corsica, down to the southern tip of Corsica, back again and over the water to Italy, back to France and the western side of the Alps before flying home. The total distance was 1,503.6 kilometers at an average speed of 108.6 kilometers per hour, and he did this in an ASH-31MI 21-meter glider. I've reached Baptiste at his home in Paris. Baptiste, congratulations on another epic flight. Thank you, Harry. Thank you. I'm very glad. Oh, I'm sure you are. Uh, it, it really is a spectacular flight. So let, let's start with the, the planning of this. How long was the flight in the works for and what kind of weather were you looking for? That's a little tricky. Uh, I, I started studying the weather five years ago for such a flight. I always dreamt of going to Corsica, the island south of France, belonging to France, and I wonder whether it was possible to come back from Corsica because I'm, I'm such a pilot who loves uh, doing closed circuits in cross-country flights. So I was wondering whether it was possible to come back from Corsica, starting from the Alps. And the only possibility was to go through Italy because when you go to Corsica with the north or westerly wind, if you try to come back the same way, it's 200 kilometers over the sea with headwind. <laughs> so it's, it's theoretically, it's impossible. So the best way would, be, would have been to cross the sea to the east, to Italy, where the wind is not strong enough uh, in lower layer to prevent you from going back to the west. So I started studying those conditions and I um, I arrived in, in the conclusion that it was possible maybe more in spring than in summer. Uh, usually I tell, people, I, I tell people that this flight is impossible in summer, but my, my flight, uh, the, the 4th of August makes me lie. So <laughs> right. it's almost impossible in summer and you'll understand later because of, uh, of a specific part of the flight. But in spring, the conditions are uh, are um, during on the whole on the whole uh, on the whole route, the conditions are good enough to close the circuit and to come back uh, to your departure point. Now I'm going to interrupt so, for just a sec. So you had this plan, and yes. you never thought it was going to work in the summer. But on August 5th of this year. You took yes. off from your gliding club, Fayence, and you started on this journey and you successfully completed it. Put, put me in the cockpit of that morning. What were you thinking? Did you think you were going to do it? Was it 50-50? What did you think? Uh, actually, so if, if you look at my flights, uh, I, I managed to do that flight this year on the 25th of May with my friend Gilles, with whom we broke the record in the Pyrenees this year in March. Yeah. We flew together at the end of May, and we 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 managed to do 
almost the same flight, so we managed to go to Corsica and go back, come back from Italy in May, mm-hmm. in spring. The fact, uh, the different uh, fact is that we started too high from Fayence because the, the wave was not good enough on lower layer. So we, start, we, we used the engine until 4,000 meters, and when we came back, we came back 1,000 meters. So the difference of altitude is 3,000 meters. So it didn't count as a record. But we opened the route, and we, and we, started, we started to, to recognize the route. And on 5th of August, in the morning, uh, I, it's, it's not exactly 50-50. It's or zero or almost 100. I, I'll explain you why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, okay. I'll explain you why. Because the, the flight is 1,300 kilometers, okay? But the main difficulty is faience, the wave over faience, so starting kilometer zero, and then Torino, uh, almost 1,100 kilometers. So, if you manage to, to climb in the wave of Fayence, you are good for more than 1,000 kilometers. You understand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, in the morning, when the, the air is dry, usually in summer, so there are no clouds, no rotor clouds, no lenticular clouds. And the wind in Fayence is, is calm. On the ground, the wind is calm all, every time. So when you take off, you, you don't know whether you're going to find the wave, going to find the wind. You're, you, you totally don't know. Maybe you, you'll be back one hour later for breakfast or or to have a little more sleep you don't know so you just need to go in the air and and wait for it and that very day the wave was actually excellent over fayence it took me only 45 minutes to climb more than 4000 meters over the airfields that was better than expected so at that very moment 45 minutes after takeoff i knew that i was good for at least 1,100 kilometers. So you knew, you were confident of making it over to Corsica, which was a, a, a big mental gap, I would imagine, or a physical gap flying over the water. It's it's a mental gap. It's it's not that much of a physical gap. It's a mental gap because it's it's only it's it's a lot and it's 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 not many. It's only 200. 230 kilometers. Only 200 kilometers over Only. water, yeah. Okay. Yes, I know. You're right. But if you if you do the math, you start 6,000 meters, and the next airfield is Calvi, north of Corsica, 230 kilometers away, with 80 kilometers per hour of tailwind. So you start at the 34 glide ratio from the coast with 80 km per hour of tailwind. It's 100% of success. Right, you understand? Right. It's just, at that point, it's math. Of course. At that point, it's only math. And the air mass is, is clear enough to see Corsica as it was very close. But one hour later, you're still, you're, you're still not on the island. And at that point... One hundred one hour later, you 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 tell, okay, it's very far actually. But <laughs> always with the math, with your uh, your the calculation you do every five minutes, you know that it's gonna pass, and there's no doubt about it. So you make I, it I would two- I, yes I sorry I wouldn't I wouldn't take the risk of landing into water. No. No, I, I imagine you wouldn't, but there's still you're still in a glider and there's still sure. something in your brain that's going, I'm flying 200 kilometers over water, even though mathematically you know you can do it. <laughs> of course. You know the best thing to do is to admire the landscape <laughs> and to see and to watch the sunset and to watch the clouds and to watch the island and tell you, wow, it's just fantastic. And 
thinking of that, you're not thinking of the danger or of the water you're flying above. Right, right. Now, you make it to the northern tip of Corsica. At what altitude are you at this point? And what's your plan to gain height to get to over to Italy? Um, The plan is to arrive north of Corsica 2,000 meters. Okay. So you adjust the speed cross over the water. You adjust the speed to arrive 2,000 meters on the lee side of north of Corsica. Mm-hmm. And at that point, the wave is usually excellent. And it makes you climb 6,000 meters with a very good uh, rate of climb. At that point, when you're 6,000 meters, you know that out of and return over the whole Corsica island is going to take you about, um, I say, two hours and a half because the island is only 150 kilometers long. So it's 300 kilometers on the wave. So it's two hours, two, uh, between two hours and two hours and a half. And there are, there is a wave almost all along the island. So but, but, it's not complicated. That part right. is not complicated. So you got down to the southern tip of, of uh, Corsica. Exactly, Figari, the, the, the city of Figari. And you're at 6,000 meters? Exactly. All, all, almost all the time you're between uh, 4,000 and 6,000 meters. When you come back to the north tip of the island, you need to climb 6,000 meters because there is another 100 uh, cross, crossing over the water. But the next waypoint where the thermal conditions uh, are supposed to be good are 100 kilometers away of the coast, Italian coast. So you need to cross another 180 kilometers before encountering good good thermal conditions. So 100 kilometers from the coast. And what's the distance from northern Corsica to the Italian coastline? A uh, hundred kilometers. So you've got two hundred kilometers in total, then that you need to go. Yes, almost. Okay. Okay. It's so. from north north tip of Corsica to the city of Bologna. Okay. In Italy. Yeah. More or less. And that worked out. And yes, at that point. So the tricky part, tricky point is to to arrive in Italy at the right moment because it's thermal flying at that point. Mm-hmm. So if you arrive too early, thermal conditions may be too weak. And if you arrive too late, you still have 300 kilometers over Italy to go. So if you arrive too late, you may be too late to cross into the Alps again because the valleys to cross to the Alps are not good after 6 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you need to adapt exactly the the time you arrive in Italy to to make sure to, to have the, the most opportunities to go back to the Alps. So what time were you hoping to arrive in this thermal environment? I wanted to arrive around uh, 12.30, mm-hmm. 12.30 a.m., uh, p.m. Mm-hmm. But uh, the conditions over Fayence and over Corsica were so excellent that if if I crossed from the north tip of Corsica directly, I would arrive at 11 a.m. I was too early, so so I decided to make another 150 kilometers over Corsica just to wait for the good good time to cross into Italy. You know that's interesting because I was looking at your OLC uh, on on the OLC, and I was wondering why you were going back and forth on the east coast of Corsica there. And now it, it makes it's sense. just to wait. Yes, it makes sense. It it was to wait the good time uh, to to go to Italy and and find good thermal conditions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think when I arrive, I think I arrive around one p.m. or one thirty, and I think the thermal conditions um, were good f- one hour ago, one okay. hour before. Okay, the conditions were already good, but. It's okay. I arrived 1.30 and I had 300 kilometers to, to, to go before entering the app. So I was on the good timing. There was no problem. 
But 130 was, was the good timing as the convergence line between Bologna and north of Genova was excellent. It oh, was so almost great. Two so you went from thermals yes. to a convergence line as well. Exactly. That was a convergence line because the the, the Italian coast to Bologna, it's a, it's a kind of a plateau. Mm-hmm. And then you have the, the plain of Po, which is very, very low. Mm-hmm. And the plain of Po is often overheated, although the plateau are... Uh, is a little less overheated. So it makes a difference of temperature between the two. And usually when the wind blows from the west, uh, it makes a convergence line from more or less Bologna to north of Genova, the airfield of Novi Ligure. Hmm. It's 200 kilometers of convergence line. And Usually it works like that. And You, you were yes, able to fly was, that whole 200 w- kilometers? Yes, exactly. It was through 200 kilometers on the convergence, and the cloud base was between 2,300 meters and 1,700 meters, but still working all along wow. the convergence. So no problem with that. So take me to the end of the convergence line. Uh, are you near the French-Italian border at this point? Yes, exactly. Uh, I have... From Novi Ligure, the end of convergence, to the good conditions in the Alps, I have almost 100 kilometers to do. Mm-hmm. And on the flight, on, on the 1,300 kilometers flight, those 100 kilometers are terrible. Because you're in the middle of the plain of Po, the temperature is almost 34 degrees, and there are almost no thermal. It's almost no thermal. It's nothing, nothing. You need to to glide, I would say, 40 kilometers from small thermals east of Torino or southeast of Torino to the first valley that that leads into the Alp. And there you, you have to try to climb meter by meter to enter the valley and to find good conditions on the western part of the border. It's very, very complicated. So thing. you're looking for ridge, you're, you're transitioning then, you've got convergence into small thermals and now you're trying to look for ridge lift, is that uh, what you're trying to do? Yes, it's it's ridge lift, it's it's thermal over ridge and, um, and every, every five kilometers you go in those valleys to the west, you, you manage to claim, climb maybe 100 or 200 meters more than the five kilometers you were uh, in, to the east. It's very, very little by little. And my average speed at that point uh, fall down to 30 kilometers per hour. So hmm. I needed almost two hours to pass those 60 very, very hard kilometers to finally find the good conditions in the Alps. It's very, very complicated now, because the sun is on the other side and the wind doesn't blow on the lower layers and you're on the wrong side. So it's very complicated. But you're flying a particularly nice ship, right? Uh, although it does yes. have German registration, I noticed. So for a Frenchman flying a German ship in record flight, I don't know, does that count? <laughs> <laughs> No, it doesn't count. <laughs> but, but my yeah, the glider is uh, is a good one. The glider is a good one. I, I love that glider because on on very small thermals, you know, you very feel everything. You feel everything. So every right. zero point five, you yeah, feel just, it. just for the so listeners, you, you can I didn't mention it. it. It's an ASH thirty one with twenty one meter wings uh, and with the turbo exactly. In it. Yeah. No, with the engine. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. It's yeah, an too. engine. And I took off with water and arriving in Italy, I dropped off the water. So my wing load was about 42 kilograms per square meter mm-hmm. at that point. So it's, it, it's slow. So uh, you, you can feel everything on the air mass. So I'm, I'm, I'm very confident in my glider for, for that part of the so, now it must be what mid afternoon, three o'clock ish, or a bit later, and you're still trying to head west. Yes, 
I'm, I'm still trying to go to the west. I know that point that if I manage to climb 3,000 meters, for example, I am, I, I am on the good part of the Alps, and then I know it. Uh, I, I have until 8 o'clock in the evening because it's my garden, the wind is blowing, I know everything very well. Right, you know this area so like I, the back of your hand. You, you grew up flying. Exactly. Right. So, Baptiste, you're now back in France. You're starting to fly along the Alps. What's your yes. next turn point? How far do you have to go before you're uh, in the clear? So, I'm back in the Alps. So, I'm back in business. I'm back in my garden. I have another 100 kilometers to go before my last turn point, which is the airfield of Serre. And then another 130 kilometers back to Fayence. But I'm ahead of schedule. So um, once in Serre, I decided to go to to go further west to extend the triangle to the west, and maybe to score one thousand and thirty three hundred kilometers on FAR triangle, the, the the farthest possible to the west, and I might I managed to do it. Uh, I I turned back at the edge of the Rhone Valley and then went back to Fayence on, on the ridges because the wind was blowing from the west. And with that conditions, I know the, the way back very, very well. So I landed in Fayence at 8 o'clock. Yes, 8 o'clock. And I still had one hour before sunset. <laughs> so there's a, a, a little margin to extend the triangle in the future. <laughs> How many hours were you airborne? Uh, I flew 14 hours Wow! from 6 to 8. That is a, a long time to be it, in the it, cockpit. Yes, it's it, it's not my record. <laughs> my record is in the Alps is 14 hours and a half. Wow. When, but in double-seater. <laughs> yes. So it, it is a spectacular flight. What, t tell me when you landed. I mean, even before you landed, you're on final glide. You know you've got yes. this in the bag. You must be of feeling course. pretty good. I was very excited because, uh, because I knew this would have been a very important flight in European history. I'm, I'm not saying that like uh, what, what I did was... Yes, what I did was pretty It was good, pretty bloody amazing. It was an uh, excellent flight. I mean, it's spectacular. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I think this this route is a, a, a brand new route uh, that, that I opened at that moment. And uh, I was very glad of, um, of, of going back to the airfield with, uh, with, the, with that record because uh, I, I think... People are looking that very in in a very interesting way. Well, you're expand you're expanding people's horizons and the horizons of what we can do in gliders. It's a, it's of fabulous. course, of course, exactly. It's, it's I'm not like a pioneer on of the uh, 18th century. <laughs> you know, it's it's not exactly the same thing. But I think. Exploring new routings, exploring new ways of uh, of flying and new cross country cross country flights is, is very exciting. Very exciting. I really now, love doing it. This. You you land. What was the reception like? Yes. I'm sure you had friends and fellow pilots who were watching you on the computers sure. after completing this flight. It must have been a bit of a celebration. Celebration. That, that that's what people told me that they were following me almost all the flight you know there are people who stayed maybe 10 hours in front of their computer and uh, <laughs> watching at you. flight flight radar <laughs> yes cool. and and they all told me the same thing at one moment at the most trickiest part of the flight when entering back into the Alps my transponder signal shut off <laughs> exactly really? at that moment. Yes, I, I don't know why. Maybe the, the, the controller of Milan lost me because I was very low in the valley. So everybody lost me at that moment. <laughs> yes. And I, everybody was wondering, oh, but yes. where is he at that worried. moment? And yes, 
yes, exactly, worried. And and when I re- reappear, <laughs> they were all uh, relieved. I can imagine. With, <laughs> Yes, but that that was very very funny. All those people telling me, well, "Yes, I was in front of my computer and following your flight or, or flight radar." That's that's very nice. It's very nice. And back at the clubhouse, back in Fayence, that evening. Ba- yes, back in Fayence, the people welcomed me with a bottle of champagne. Ah, fantastic! And uh, and I had my wife and my daughter, and I had very beautiful pictures with my daughter on the glider with me <laughs> upon landing so very very exciting images and uh, I will I will keep them uh, for a long time Baptiste it's it's been a real pleasure speaking with you again and again congratulations thank on you. this spectacular yeah. flight and uh, thank you I, I have a feeling we're going to be talking again uh, probably in the next couple of months or certainly in the next year or two about other flights yeah, why not? you're going to do. I hope so. I, I hope so. so. Thank you, Harry. All right. A real pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks Take a care. Lot. Bye-bye. My pleasure. Bye. Bye. Baptiste, in a sense, spoke to me from Paris. This isn't Baptiste's first experience with record-breaking. Back in March 2021, this year, Baptiste and Gilles Souvran broke two European open-class records in Gilles' STEMI S12, a 25-meter motor glider, while flying between Spain and France. The Thermal Podcast is proud to promote Proving Grounds, an automated task scoring platform designed to safely turn novice glider pilots into cross-country soaring pilots. Proving Grounds is now in use in Canada, Europe, and the United States. And the Soaring Society of America now joins the Soaring Association of Canada by providing support for gliding clubs who want to implement this fabulous cross-country motivational tool. Check out episode 15 of The Thermal, where co-founder Patrick McMahon talks about Proving Grounds and how it works. For more information, go to their website, which is SoaringTasks, all one word, .com. That's SoaringTasks.com. Proving Grounds is especially a hit among novice pilots who want to learn how to safely fly beyond gliding distances of the club. The International Vintage Sailplane Meet is wrapped up at Harris Hill, New York. It's a fantastic event with a wide variety of fabulous gliders. But COVID put a damper on the international aspect of the meet. I was one of the people who'd planned to attend with my LK-10A World War II trainer, but the U.S. border crossings with Canada are still closed to non-essential travel. Now, one of the pilots who attended was Marisi Reed. She made the long drive from Oregon, along with a contingent from the Western Antique, Aviation and Automobile Museum. I reached Marisi at her home in Independence, Oregon. Hello, Marisi. Thanks for coming on to the show and talking about the IVSM. Hi, Harry. Thank you very much for having me. So, what was the, the meet like this year? I understand there were all sorts of gliders. Yes, it was a really spectacular meet. I've been to a few different IVSMs. I was there uh, last time and I've been um, an attendee. Um, briefly at a couple more of them in the past, and uh, this really had some spectacular gliders. Um, for example, we had uh, a fresh restoration of the Johnny Robinson uh, Robin glider, which is totally unique and something that wasn't on my radar at all. It was absolutely spectacular restoration. That's Doug Fronius' um, gl- glider, right? Yeah, that's correct, and it apparently belonged to his father, so it's been in the family for a long time. It was a one-off. And he, um, after his retirement, he decided to uh, put it back together. <laughs> so. I'm looking for. I'm, I'm actually going to talk to Doug at some point about that glider. He's a fellow LK10 oh, driver as well, and uh, oh, I've met right. him over the years. So I'm looking forward to learning more about that. Now, you you went out with a big group from Oregon, and you took a bunch of gliders with you as well, right? That's correct. Uh, I came with WAM, which is the Western Antique Airplane and Automobile Museum. Um, they have a, a really good collection of vintage gliders, about 20 of them um, on display. And we brought uh, the Mossway 3, which is on display usually. Mm-hmm. We brought the Petrol, um, the Slingsby Petrol, which is also a, a beautiful, absolutely beautiful restoration, all wood glider. Gull wing, right? It is, and both of them are the Mossway 3 and the um, Petrol are gull wing gliders. Beautiful. And then the Mini Moa, yeah, the Mini Moa came from 
uh, Wyoming, although we had test flown it um, just previously, uh, just previous to leaving, we test flew it at the museum. So uh, tell me a little bit about the Mini MOA. I understand. First of all, tell me a little bit about this glider, how old it is. And you test flew it after the restoration, right? Yes, I did the first flight of it. Um, it's a 1938, and uh, it was imported into the U.S. This particular individual uh, came over at the early part of World War II. I've seen records that said it came over before the war, and mm -hmm. I think what happened was they shipped it from Germany right before the war started, and by the time it got here to the U.S., uh, the war was underway. Um, it came to Shelley Charles, who was uh, quite a glider pilot. He was from Georgia, and he was an Eastern Airlines captain. And uh, he did a bunch of remarkable flights in it, including uh, the Georgia state altitude record. Um, he did that in, I'm trying to think of what year he did that, but um, I have the date here. That flight was in 1943 hmm. in a thunderstorm. <laughs> Before we knew better. And then, um, right. <laughs> well, that wasn't the first time a Mini Moa has set a record in a thunderstorm. There was a famous flight, I think, in Germany in, in the 30s, mm -hmm. 1938 perhaps, where the world altitude record was set at about 20, 21,000 feet or something like that. So it wasn't the first time they'd done that. Um, and then Shelley Charles had it for just a... Uh, 10 years, and then he sold it to Bill Cloverdale, and by 1949, it looks like Bill had flown it at Elmira. That's the, the only records I could find on it, <laughs> within the Nationals, in 1949. And then this, the last registration we have for the Mini Moa was in 1950, so it probably did not fly after 1951, huh. because the registrations are good for a year. So 70 years later, you're the first person to fly it. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> and so it was in storage that whole time, and I don't know the story of the, the storage portion, but it was stored properly. It was stored well in a dry place. Uh, apparently it needed very little work as far as, you know, it didn't have to be completely disassembled and, and remade. Mm -hmm. The glue joints of the wings were good. It has new fabric on it, of course. Right. And uh, there was a, a section of wing that had some damage, so there's, you can see where there's some repairs. So what was it uh, like? That, what was it like to fly? Um, <laughs> it's a it feels vintage. <laughs> yeah, I get uh, it. Yeah. Have you ever flown a Have you ever flown a Jenny? <laughs> I haven't. No, but I've flown a Tiger a Moth. Okay, I, I haven't flown a Tiger Moth, but a Jenny um, has a, it, the airlines are, are kind of heavy and almost useless. Okay, um, you end up flying the turns a lot with the rudder. <laughs> And this handles that way. It, to me, just was immediately was like, oh, this is a Jenny of the glider world. So it, it has um, kind of a, you know, long wings. Gliders are, are sluggish compared to airplanes anyway. But this one is kind of, you know, leisurely in its action. It uh, does nothing really quickly. Um, except it does get off the ground very, very quickly. Right. It's a floater. Right. And it just jumps off the ground. And then after that, you're... Uh, it's a lot of um, manhandling. Now, did you fly it at uh, the meet in Elmira as well? I did. I got a couple of flights uh, in the Mini Moa there. The weather was challenging this year. It was really rainy. Everything was very saturated. Um, but we did manage to fly every single day of the meet. Somebody flew at least once hmm. every day around now the rain clouds. So... And then we had a spectacular day. Well, for the for this particular day, we had a really good day on Thursday, where I think they logged something like eighty toes, where everybody got to go and you know share their gliders. It was fantastic. Ah, you know, I I, I love uh, those vintage meets. They're so much fun. But what is it about vintage gliders that uh, that attracts you to it? Um. Well, I've been asked that a lot. <laughs> I don't know if I, I have a, I have a constantly changing answer to that question. Um, but I noticed, have you ever heard of the pilot personality profile? Uh, nope. It's, if you Google that, if you look up pilot personality profile, it's, it's actually a pretty hilarious read. If you're a pilot, it, it just nails the typical pilot personality. Okay. It talks about how we're very, you know, um, we're not big 
emotional talkers. We're very business. <laughs> you know, we tend to scan a situation and make a decision very quickly. It's it's pretty good. So if, if you're able to look that up. I will, right I after this interview. A, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think there should be a similar one for vintage glider pilots. I mean, glider pilots are different from powered pilots in some way, right? Mm-hmm. There's yeah, like sailboat pot or sail, sailing and motorboating. Okay, I don't know anything about sailing, but I can imagine there could be a difference like that. Um, and so there's the sailplane profile, and then there's the vintage sailplane pilot profile. I, I don't have the creativity to come up with that, but um, there we just noticed during this meet there are a lot of vintage glider pilots who have a background in engineering, mm-hmm. who are history buffs, and there are a lot of people who have spent um, quite a bit of their career in music in one way or another, which is an interesting little, very strong thread. And that, actually, I fit that profile. So um, there's that. And you're a musician as well. Well, I I spent a lot of time in music when I was younger. I was an oboist. Mm -hmm. And and I continue to play, and my kids are into music and stuff. So I have an interest in music. I'm not real professional at this point, but... Um, I've, it is a big part of my life. So, yeah, I fit that profile. But, like, objectively, when it comes to what do I enjoy about it, um, they're, the vintage gliders are so different from one another. If you fly a Cessna, and then you fly, you know, like a 172, and then a 182, there's, yeah. I don't know, they're not that interesting. They're kind of generic. But the vintage gliders tend to have so much personality. Um, some of them have to be coaxed to do what you want them to do. Um, others are just so straightforward and honest and fun. You know, the open cockpit uh, gliders, such as, a, you know, 119 I got to fly recently, which is just a kick in the pants. You know, open cockpit, you got your goggles on. That's your Schweitzer, Taking right? off from a grass strip. Yeah, Schweitzer, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and the Mini Moa just fits that. It's It's got so much personality it's so unique and it is wood and it feels different from a metal glider or a fiberglass glider it has kind of a gentle feel to it and as you take off you can hear the joints in the in the wood kind of moving a little yeah, bit yeah 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 um it's just got a it just gets your senses in a way that uh, modern planes don't i totally so agree. i think i enjoy yeah the vintage gliders there's so many different kinds and i think that's what we um, these rallies or um, meets, the vintage meets, are so full of these generous people who are willing to share, and are enthusiastic to share their own glider and say, I want you to fly my glider. I want you to experience this thing. <laughs> so nice. I think that's what I like about it. Now, you, you had a bit of an epic adventure, too, just driving across the country from Oregon all the way to upstate New York and back again <laughs> yeah. with a bunch of gliders. How did that all work out? Oh, that was fantastic. Um, and I love driving. Um, and I love seeing um, off-the-wall things on the road, mm-hmm. and so uh, that's just right up my alley. <laughs> yes, I saw some of your posts. They were fascinating. Yeah. Uh, we try to hit, like, historical sites, but we also hit some um, airplane museums on the way, and that always kind of fills in, you know, historical blanks and things in our minds and in our experience, so, yeah, we enjoyed that a lot. And you stopped and I think you flew in a couple places on your way there and back, I guess? We flew on the way back um, at the Wabash Valley uh, Soaring Association in Lawrenceville. Right. We stopped there on the way back, and I was able to fly a Schweitzer 119, which is a wonderful little open cockpit Schweitzer. And I also got to fly a LaBelle, which is just absolutely delightful. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we, got, we spent two days there and just shared our, our gliders, took the petrol out, and had a, a couple of nice flights in that. Um, we didn't have good soaring conditions at IVSM. We did get some thermals right over the field. I don't think anybody went anywhere. Um, and no, so it was no nice ridge lift just... this year? I actually took the Mini Moa out and floated a little bit on the ridge in some really, really weak conditions. Mm-hmm. But that's what the Mini Moa is good at. Yeah, it's a floater. Floats. Yeah. yeah, so I was able to do that for just uh, just a little bit, and I had to come back. And not and not land but... in the valley. <laughs> no. <laughs> Good, 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 good. Yeah. Um, but in Lawrenceville, we were able to stay up for about an hour, and we were only coming back because it was the next person's turn. We could have stayed up for hours. Right. So 
nice well, to get a break and do some soaring. Yeah. It's, it sounds like you had a great trip and a great experience flying this Mini Moa. What a what a beautiful machine to fly, and I appreciate the sense of history that you uh, give us when you describe it. It's a uh, really reminiscent of the old days. Yeah, and that's that's what it's fantastic to just be able to go to Harris Hill of all places. Mm-hmm. And know that these gliders flew there 70 years ago. Right. And, uh, and, and incidentally, if you look in the vintage sailplane book by Martin Simons, he has a big picture in there of a mini MOA flying at Harris Hill. And it's accompanied by the Mossway. And those are exactly the gliders that we took. It the, wasn't intentional, but... The identical gliders. The Mossway is the identical glider, but the mini MOA is not. Okay. This mini MOA has not flown since one, probably. Okay. Well, Marisi, thank you so much for telling me about uh, this year's International Vintage Sailplane Meet and and flying the mini MOA and dragging it across the country and back again to Oregon. (laughs) So I really appreciate it. And I hope, uh, you know, once COVID uh, settles down, I'm hoping that the next IVSM that I'll be able to attend with my LK-10 and uh, fingers crossed. That will be great. Thank you for having me. And just as a reminder, the next IVSM, and it hasn't been planned or anything yet, but in about three years, it will be the 50th anniversary of uh, VSA. Yeah, cool. So I'm hoping that we'll have good participation for that. That's, I gotta. Hopefully that does come together. That would be great. Yeah. Okay. Well, take care, and uh, we'll uh, see you in the sky somewhere. Great. Thank you, Harry. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Vintage glider pilot Maurice Reed spoke to me from Independence, Oregon. The vintage gliding movement is remarkable. If you like history, maybe there's an abandoned vintage glider at your club that's just waiting to be brought back to life. That's it for episode number 27 of The Thermal. Please remember to subscribe to the show via your podcast provider. I can be reached at The Thermal Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's The Thermal Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for centering The Thermal Podcast. See you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe.